Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, what's streaming, what's in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go. I'm a longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan. You can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Yeah. Al John, we got another great show. We just completed our month of uh, Andreas Deja, and now we're on to uh, another great guest. We have got Tom Butch, art director at the Disneyland Entertainment uh, uh, Group, and uh, he's a former art director. He's retired now, uh, but he's going to be talking to us about uh, Fantasmic and a bunch of other stuff. I love it. You know, he is such a great, a great person. And uh, as I go back to the last month, that was epic as well. It's like we're, you know, firing on all cylinders here as we wrap up the year. I can't believe it's December already. I, I know it's it's unbelievable. We're barreling to the holidays at this point. You know, it. they're going to be here before we know it. Yes. And, uh, you know, we're we're already lining up uh, some fantastic interviews for 2023. Yes. Uh, and that'll kick off in January. We, we're already recording people now for next year. Uh, so it's just uh, we're we're like the train, you know, <laughs> uh, the train picking up steam. We, we, we Nobody can stop us. I love it. I love it. Um, just a quick reminder to everybody to check out Old Mill Press, too, by the way, because, you know, the holidays are here. And you got to get something for that special someone under the tree. So go ahead and get those stocking stuffers, the great books that Dave has put out. And I I don't even want to call them books, Dave. They are pieces of art. Oh, thank because you Because they much. are just like so, they're, they're just great, great just works. You know, the hardcover books are just amazing, more than just coffee table books. But they're so insightful. So I would encourage everybody to check out the show links um, in our notes. To go you know, check it's, out it, it, was, it was funny, Al John. I got a note this morning from a friend who sent me a photograph. Yeah. Uh, and it showed my 3D Disneyland book and my Claude Coates book on the shelf at a gallery. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, they were for sale. They had multiple copies and it was uh, sort of an art gallery bookstore uh, somewhere in Los Angeles. I'm still waiting to find out where, but uh, that was a nice surprise uh, for my friend Stephen. Well, that is wonderful. And rightfully so, because they should be put in there. It's like, you know, one of the cool, It. I'm such a fan of behind the music and these type of documentaries all the time, as our listeners know. And so when you get Dave's books, they're so well thought. And they have so much different include, you know, special bonus features, if you will, and, and great art and pictures that um, all the fans will love it. So uh, definitely go out there and pick up those books. Thank you, Al John. Yeah, of course. Now, before we get into the big interview of the week, we uh, should talk about some awesome stuff like uh, this. What are we listening and, and watching this week? I've been listening to a lot of Fleetwood Mac, Dave, and we'll get into that uh, for for various reasons. But um, what have you been watching, Dave? Well, well, you know, I went to the movies, as I do almost on a weekly basis. Uh, I try to. Yeah. Uh, and I saw the Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's offering this season. Uh, and I saw that in a movie theater. Uh, and I have to tell you, I really liked it a lot. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, you know, uh, it's his story, uh, of him growing up. Uh, and, uh, I, I thought it was a terrific film, uh, really enjoyable. I think it's a great holiday offering as well. Um, and it's got a great cast. So that's all I'm going to say about it because I think you should go see it. And whether you see it in the theaters or you see it on a streaming service at some point, uh, just put it on your list of things to watch because it is a really uh, well done movie as usual from Steven Spielberg. I love it. That's good. That's good. Enough. Yeah. Yeah. Any, and, anything else? Yeah. You know, I'm keeping, keeping up with Tulsa King as the episodes drop on Paramount plus uh, I really like it. It's, it's picking up steam. It's a good show. And and by the way, Paramount Plus picked up the show for a season two. Nice. So there will be a season two of that. Perfect. Um, I uh, watched uh, the final season of uh, Dead to Me on Netflix mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Christina Applegate. Uh, again, another really terrific uh, series. And then I watched season two of Hope Street, which is a uh, a show uh, on BritBox through Prime mm-hmm. uh, that's shot in Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I, I just love these kinds of shows, partially because I love the, the cinematography, you know, sure, sure. I love I love the settings. It, it, it You know, it's a it's about a group that works in a police station uh, in a small uh, fictitious uh, um town uh uh on the coast of uh northern ireland right and and, uh so i really enjoyed it uh some people may want to check that out uh if they like those kinds of shows uh it's really enjoyable nice nice well for me this week i too have uh got my paramount plus on because one of my favorite criminal shows um procedural shows criminal minds evolution is back after almost two, three years of being out Um, right before the pandemic, they did their quote unquote last broadcast season. And now they are back with a streaming only on Paramount plus show. I think it's going to be six to eight parts, but um, of course the team is back of course with some omissions, but uh, they've kind of nicely written them out. Um, 
as the behavioral uh, analysis unit of the FBI goes and tracks down a prolific serial killer. And so um, I love the characters there. They're just wonderful. So I'm glad to see them back. And then, because you, you mentioned it, Dave, and this has been on my list for a while, Wednesday, saw it on Netflix. Got a few more episodes left. But I will say that it's great. I really yeah. enjoy it. It's quirky. It's kind of um, Harry Potter meets, of course, you know, um, Wednesday Adams, Adams Family. You've got that whole thing going on, plus a little teen drama. I, 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 when I first watched the the first episode, I said to Kristen, I looked at her and I said, "So this is Thirteen Reasons. What is it? Friday the Thirteen Reasons Why." right because it has all that it has a little bit of the the john hughes element of being at school but it's kind of like a a crazy twilight hogwarts thing going on yeah yeah it's it's, it's it's fabulous it's a nice mashup and of course uh, ortega um i'm sorry that the name is escaping me but the the lead the the lead yeah she's great Yes. And she is she is just really really good. A lot of tight close-ups. Uh, Jenna Ortega, yes, that's it. So Jenna Ortega is great, and um, and she fakes playing the cello really well. I like that. She there's, does. There's a good thing going on there. <laughs> Gwendolyn Christie, of course. Kristen had said, Gwendolyn Christie, Captain Phasma. She is tall, and I said yes because we haven't seen we haven't seen um, Lord of the uh, not Lord of the, I'm sorry uh, we hadn't seen uh, Game of Thrones yet. Mm-hmm. I know this is going to come to a surprise to a lot of people. Uh, it's yes. on the queue. It's been on the queue for a while, but she's like, wow, she's really tall. It's like, yes, she certainly is. She's like six, six, three or something. Yeah. Yeah. She's, and, and she's terrific. And she is terrific yeah. because it's great. And then you have the, um, as you said, I think the, the wonderful addition. And I thought it was just going to be like a, a nice little cameo, but it certainly wasn't of, uh, the Wednesday Adams, uh, Christina Ricci. Yes. And, she looks great as a redhead. Like I've never, yeah. I never thought she'd be, yeah. be there. But I like, I can't go on more and more about this. It's just wonderful. It's great that uh, they brought Ed, uh, Danny Elfman, uh, Elfman in to do the the show, and the music sounds great. Of course, Tim Burton, his handprints are on it, and uh, I really enjoyed it, Dave. Yeah, and one thing I'll add to this that came out this week, I read a little blurb in the trades um that uh the viewership for wednesday surpassed that of stranger world or stranger things or excuse me stranger things is that yeah, right we're, we're we're actually going to talk about strange world in a minute yeah but no strange stranger things wednesday uh surpassed uh for uh it's a first week mm. it's surpassed uh viewing hours which is i guess how they're tracking a lot of these streamers mm-hmm. um it it surpassed uh stranger things in its uh week that dropped back in what june or something oh that's really that's that's yeah. really interesting yeah i don't know if maybe stranger things had kind of fallen off the map for some people because you know there are only so many stories it feels like there's some copy and paste there, you know, with yeah. Stranger Things. It, sometimes you can, you know, be a derivative of yourself, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, with Wednesday, it's new and fresh, and I like the way it's kind of mashing up different genres to offer something cool, fun, and witty. So yeah, I like it. I can't I, wait to I'm, see wait, more. I'm waiting for them to announce a season two. Oh, I think it's inevitable. It really yeah, is. I think absolutely. It's great. 
All right, gang, what are you watching? Please drop us an email and let us know if you have any suggestions to what we need to add to our queue. We would love to hear from you. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. All right, Dave. Stranger World, box office. Strange World. Strange World, Strange World, Strange World, yes. Well, I can't even say the movie name right. That's how bad the marketing was. <laughs> you know, this article in The Hollywood Reporter, why the Disney animated picture spun flopped. Uh, I have to tell you, this was, you know, I haven't seen the film yet, so I'm not going to comment on the film. You know, it looks beautiful. Technically, it looks beautiful, and I'm sure it is a beautiful-looking movie. But you could not tell what this movie was about from the marketing and the marketing seemed non-existent to me. Um, I only saw trailers, uh, you know, on television uh, in, you know, maybe three or four days before the movie was opening last week Mm -hmm. and, uh, or excuse me, you know, Thanksgiving week. And I have to tell you, uh, that's a, that's a huge problem when you're looking at a trailer and you can't tell what's, what, what the movie's about. That's a huge problem. Who it's, cares then? Right. I mean, you know, good trailers should give you a synopsis of what the movie is about and why you should go see it in a minute or a minute and a half. Yes. That's what, that's what they're designed to do. Yeah. I don't know who cut the trailer for it. But it was a hodgepodge of scenes that that it made no sense to me. And, and I laughed, by the way, because there was one shot where it's sort of like somebody said, well, uh, show the dog. Mm-hmm. You know, you could just picture somebody in the editing room, uh, drop a shot of the dog in. Everybody likes dogs. You know, it was, it was sort of like a, a random thing, you yeah, know, a trailer made by committee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and I have to say, you know, this is this is abysmal. You know, for a Disney animated film, a Walt Disney Animation Studios film to open on Thanksgiving weekend, which it has owned Thanksgiving weekend for a very long time. I would say decades, decades. Uh, It has owned Thanksgiving weekend and for it to open at eighteen point nine million dollars is shocking absolutely shocking and it's got to be a time of reflection for the people at Walt Disney Animation Studios because there's something seriously wrong did i read this right dave that this is the worst disney opening in the history of walt disney animation oh absolutely yeah a- absolutely you know if you go if you go back and and adjust for inflation on all the box office openings going back to snow white this would be the worst fans seem to have been given a cinema score for this film as B, which is not good. And 64% on, or 74% now it's risen slightly on rotten tomatoes. And so, wow. I, yeah, it's amazing to me that this slot did as poorly for Disney, because as you said, they've owned it for many, many years. I don't know what the film's about, I saw a teaser at D23. I saw maybe a commercial, maybe two of this. Uh, 
this film and I still don't know what it's about. All I can glean from it is the fact that they use some kind of, you know, pulp, uh, pulp, uh, fiction style art, uh, for, for the strange world thing. So that kind of leads me to believe it's like something from, you know, back in, back in the day, like, um, you know, like the 50 foot woman, you know, kind of, you know, some kind of weird sci-fi adventure. Right. Cause it had that whole thing, but like, I don't, I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, listen, I, I mean, there was no buzz whatsoever on this movie. Yeah. None. And, and by the way, I, I happened to see a social media advertisement for strange world. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I started looking at the comments and there was, there was hundreds of comments uh, attached to the image. And I was, I was aghast at, at the negative comments. Yeah. You know, somebody saying he took his daughter to see the movie and she kept asking if it was almost over and could they go, you know, I mean, that's just, it's just terrible to, to, to be able to read those kinds of comments. And, and, you know, I feel for the artists that work on a movie like that because they've worked on it for several years. Yeah. And they put their hearts and souls into it to make it the best it possibly can. So when it goes out and falls on its face and this, this did a face plant as far as I'm concerned, yeah. uh, it, it, it's, it's terrible. And whoever, you know, had their hand in the marketing of this, whoever cut the trailer, those people should be shown the door because <laughs> they didn't do their job. Nope. They did not do their job. Now it seems to me like if you had someone actually watching over the product, uh, you know, maintaining that Disney quality, that you would look at the trailer and go, "Who, who put this crap together? Like, well, why, yeah. why doesn't it have the Disney stamp on it? Because the whole point <laughs> is to drive people to the theater. I feel like Disney was hedging their bets. Maybe they felt that this film is just not worthy to get this kind of marketing budget." But even then, why would you, why wouldn't someone during the process just hold it back and say, we need to retool this movie and quickly. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you, you know why? Because, you know, when they, when they take a, a, a release date, you know, and they have, and, and if you have to move your release date, it could cost millions. Of course. You know, and I, all I can say is, you know, kudos to, you know, people trying to do new stories and different things. But at the same time, you know, the marketplace is crowded with animated films. Disney animation used to be the only game in town, you know, back in the day. You know, they were the only ones putting out animated features with the exception of the odd one from somebody, you know, independently or, you know, a studio that that financed something. Uh, it was always Disney animation. And now you've got plenty of competition. You know, you've got uh, Netflix animation, Sony, mm-hmm. you've got DreamWorks, which is now part of Universal. Universal also owns Illuminations. You got Warner Brothers, which, you know, who knows what they're doing now with all the cuts that are happening over there. Uh, you got Skydance animation. You've got, you know, so many competitors uh, turning out films, Pixar, they're all blending together, 
and Disney Animation is going to be celebrating 100 years because the company was founded with Disney Animation That's right. in 1923. Yep. So you, you're you're celebrating 100 years of legacy, and this is the face plant you put out to the public. I mean, they should have been timing it to put out, you know, a spectacular musical. And I know people go, oh, I'm so sick of musicals. That's all Disney does. Well, you know what? Play to your strengths. 100%. Yes. Play to your strengths. Do a movie people will love, you know, and and love not just because of the music, but because of the story. And I think they're losing their way. And this is an embarrassment beyond belief in, in, in my book, because, again, next year you got the 100th anniversary of the company. I mean, for crying out loud, what are they releasing next year? You know, you know what I they need to do? They just needed to just re-release the Avengers films again. Bring people back. Because <laughs> no, look, talk- cause here's the thing, Dave. You said it's going to cost millions to move. How much of this million? How much of this movie lose? internally a hundred million plus loss according to analysts oh i i think that's on the low side i think oh, it'll course. be much more than that of i course. mean if they if they spend 180 million dollars on the, uh to make the film and that's that's what they claim publicly you don't know exactly how much it was it could have been more than that and then add to it you know uh typically you know 40 or 50 million dollars more for marketing which by the way i'd ask for my money back because i'd like to know where the heck that money was spent on marketing because i sure as heck didn't see it oh 100 100 and you know and and the the you know the bottom line is that you know if you've got if you've got uh 230 million dollars invested into this film and it opens to 18.9 you know half of that's going to the exhibitors so you're going to walk away with 10 million dollars for a thanksgiving weekend on a 230 million dollar investment wow <laughs> you know that that's that that's horrible horrible where where, where where's jim kramer now where's the mad money guy <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Honestly, this should be a Nikita Khrushchev moment where, you know, the shoe comes off and you're banging it on that, the table. That's going, right. That's you know, right. we can't do this anymore. Yeah, where's the, the, the scene The scene from Parliament? That's what happens. So speaking of speaking of monetizing, though, where they did monetize is on YouTube because Marvel had just been fresh off the heels of one of the biggest Comic-Cons in Brazil, Dave. The Brazil Comic-Con is one of the biggest Comic-Cons next to San Diego Comic-Con, and they decided to go ahead and throw together two, and I say throw together lightly because they definitely thought about this. This is the stuff people have seen at D23. The Quantumania, the Ant-Man Quantumania special look, it's a two-minute trailer. As of two days ago, 1.8 million views, Dave. And then... Before that, the official trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy, James Gunn's swan song to the Marvel Cinematic Universe with these characters, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, two days ago, Dave, 18 million views on YouTube. Mm. These trailers were absolutely amazing. More people saw these trailers than went to the theater to go see Strange World. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's phenomenal, isn't it? And, and I, I have to tell you, all of these trailers that were dropping this past week are, are stunning. Um, by the way, I, did, I don't know if I mentioned it last week or I, I watched um, Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Oh, yeah. How did I, you? I don't know if I mentioned it last week. No. If I did, I'm going to repeat myself because I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. Great. Even if you're not a Marvel superhero fan, 
the this is this is like a 35 40 minute holiday special yes. it, it's absolutely fantastic yes. directed by james gunn it's got the cast from guardians of the galaxy and it centers around uh essentially uh a couple of the guardians going to earth to get kevin bacon and kevin bacon plays himself He's absolutely hilarious. Uh, it, this is just a really well done holiday special, and, and I would, you know, highly recommend it to anybody. Even even if you're not a big Marvel superhero fan, check this special out because I think it'll bring a smile to your face. Did you love the rotoscoping animation at the very beginning? You know, yes. with with the yeah. the whole heavy metal look of it all, because <laughs> yes. it's it reminds like it really pulls my heartstrings because I love the movie heavy metal because of the animation there. You and I need need to actually talk about that at some point because I love yeah that, I yeah love that movie. We, we we actually should get I think that's a Ralph Bakshi film right? It is. We should, mm-hmm. we should try and get Ralph on uh, on the show. I would love uh, to. Yeah, because I actually I didn't think heavy metal. I was thinking American pop. Same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same, yeah. same kind of same you know same same campaign. yeah. Yeah, it's so good. But, uh, you know, once again, uh, I encourage people to go out there, check out the special because James Gunn really did a love letter to a lot of fans uh, for for those heroes. And it looks like uh, this next trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is going to be the same. And Dave, a quick aside here, speaking of James Gunn. There have been reports that because James Gunn is the head of, you know, one of the heads of DC Studios now they are looking to actually do a DC and a Marvel crossover film. Did you hear about this? No, I didn't, but you know something that would be so fantastic. Yeah. It really would be. Yeah. The, the amalgam universe, because this is not the first time uh, DC and Marvel heroes have actually came together in comic books. It was maybe about 30, maybe 20 years ago that they did a crossover. You can't find it digitally, but they did like two or three different crossover comics and it made a lot of money. Yeah. And I can only imagine that a cinematic universe together, maybe 10 years, five years down the road would just be the biggest film to ever happen. And you talk about putting butts in seats, who wouldn't want to see Iron Man or Spider-Man back up against Batman and Iron Man, right? Or Captain America. I mean, that is just a, a geek's dream come true. But anyway, Back on track here, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny also dropped, and as of two days ago, 7.7 million views, Dave. (laughs) I I love this trailer. I mean, this trailer is everything you ever wanted, you know, and, you know, I've tried to get my wife into Indiana Jones because she loves history and things like that, and I said, you're going to love Indiana Jones because it deals with the whole kind of, you know, World War II plot and Indiana Jones breaking in to get a holy relic from the Nazis. They're trying to steal it to gain world power and everything. And she goes, well, it sounds great. (laughs) I'm like, I don't understand why you haven't seen Indiana Jones. And it looks like they're going back to their roots. And um, it looks great. The historical touch points. Harrison Ford, of course, is back. And they brought back Sala, which I love that character. And yeah, oh my gosh, Dave. And then the de aging, like I hate to say spoiler alert, spoiler alert, but man, the de aging on Harrison Ford is top uh, notch. But, but, but they, you know, it, it's, it's a fantastic trailer. Yeah. I mean, you get everything you want out of that trailer. And that's the excitement of can't wait until next June to see this movie. I can't wait. Yeah. Harrison Ford was visibly moved. During the D23 Expo, when he came out to talk about the film, he was breaking up. He started having little tears run down his cheek, and 
and it's great to see an actor that distinguished and that 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 beloved yeah. to kind of go out there and say this is the a great the one of the greatest movies that he's worked on. I, I, you know, honestly, I I really hope that they could do another one. I, I, you know, I hope, I hope he has another one in him. Mm-hmm. I hope this isn't his last one. It, it's just such a great franchise. Well, you know, Harrison Ford was recently signed on uh, last month to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Dave. Yes. So he is going to be the Red Hulk in the brand new uh, Thunderbolts film with Kevin Feige at the helm, of course, for Marvel Studios. So he's taking okay. over that role. I think we may have talked about it. Great, but uh, right. Harrison Ford looks amazing. Looks absolutely amazing. Yeah, so, check out that trailer online. We're going to put a link to it, aren't we? Yeah, sure. Why not? Let's yeah. do it. Okay. <laughs> Last but not least, um, one of the rock and roll legends, and I think she is kind of the George Harrison of this band, is Christine McVie. Fleetwood Max Christine McVie passes away at the age of seventy nine. This is from the Hollywood Reporter, of course. And the late family, singer's family, shared news via statement that she passed away at the hospital following a short illness. It was undisclosed at the time um, that she pa- uh, what she passed away from. But I can tell you, Dave, Fleetwood Mac is in my Mount Rushmore of rock bands. Um, I've seen Fleetwood Mac several times. And all with Christine McVie, the classic, not not the original lineup, okay, but the classic lineup with Christine McVie at the keyboard and, and singing. And it was, both experiences were religious for me because they sound so good. And to have Christine McVie and a lot of her timeless songs in that catalog for Fleetwood Mac, it's just, she's going to be, you know, missed. And, I, I got to tell you, Al John, uh, I don't go to concerts very often. Uh, uh, but the ones I go to are really memorable. Uh, I, you know, I have an aversion to big arenas with big crowds. Uh, but I took Nancy and our daughters to see Fleetwood Mac at the, uh, pond in Anaheim. Mm -hmm. Uh, when they were touring and this has to be six, seven years ago, but it was before the pandemic, but it was the full band, you know? Yeah. Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham, Christine McVie, Mm -hmm. of course, uh, Mick Fleetwood on drums. I mean, it was an incredible concert. Yeah. Incredible. And our, our daughter, our daughters loved it. Yeah. And you know, when I heard the news that she had passed away, I, I I said to Nancy, wow, you know, it's like we're starting to see the, the 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 musicians that we grew up with, the bands that we grew up with are now they're they're starting to pass away. Yeah. You know, I mean it's pop culture. It kinda, it's yeah. pop culture, music history, yeah. it's ingrained. You know, these rumors is one of the quintessential rock albums of all yeah. time. And then to see them, you know, slowly pass. Um, I mean, that's what happens. You know, the sands of time do run out. And uh, but but again, yeah. incredible body of work. Uh, un- unbelievable. I have to you know that. I mean, yeah. that music's going to be playing for decades and decades into the future. Absolutely. Well, classics. Yeah. You know, musicians pass away, people pass away, but music never dies. Great music never dies. 
And yeah, great I art mean the, the the art lives on. The, the art, art lives, lives on. on, whether whether it's acting or music or you know paintings, writing, whatever. It all lives on. Stevie Nicks had made a handwritten letter that she posted saying, "A few hours ago, I was told my best friend in the whole world since the first day of 1975 had passed. I didn't even know she was ill until late Saturday night. I wanted to be in London. I wanted to get to London." But we were told to wait. So since Saturday, one song has been swirling around me in my head over and over. I thought I might possibly get to sing it to her. And so I'm singing it to her now. I know. I always know I would need these words one day. I mean. It's terrible. It is terrible. But uh, once again, uh, I am a big fan of Fleetwood Mac and Christine McVie. May she rest in peace. Yeah. And that wraps up the news for this week. Dave. It's time for our special guest. Let's check let's out. Do it. Yeah, let's check out Tom Bush right now on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we have a fantastic guest. We have Tom Bush, retired art director from Disneyland. And uh, Tom, I want to welcome to welcome you to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. You, you can hear our, our studio audience go wild. Uh, and, and, you know, Tom, before we get into all the incredible work you did at Disneyland throughout your career, um, I, I, I really want to ask you how you started. How did you get into becoming an art director at Disneyland Entertainment and doing all these incredible things like the Fantasmic Show and all that? Where, where did it all start for you? Well... I could always draw. Uh, and so, you know, I, as a kid and on and on my, with my friends and copying things, cartoons, et cetera. Uh, so I could always draw, but I never got into the theater until I was in high school. And uh, turns out our humanities teacher at this little small high school in Minnesota, where I was going to my junior year, uh, I was a new kid in town because I actually was an army brat. We moved all over the place, lived all over the world. And uh, but my parents were from this small town in Minnesota. And so when my dad would go on a hardship tour, we would go back there to live in a house that they own. The rest of the time, my grandfather would rent the house out. What, what's a hardship tour? Well, that means the family can't go. So you're he's in the military and he gets sent to like, for instance, one time he went to Japan uh, and he was there for a year and then we went to Japan and the, you know, later on he went to Turkey for a year and then we went to Turkey after the year and we were there for a couple of years and this was to Korea. And so we went back to uh, the small town in Minnesota where my mom's family was. So she was comfortable. So and once again, I was the new kid in town. Right. And didn't really know that many people, but the humanities teacher at the high school, uh, who was also, as it turns out, the drama teacher and directed the plays, uh, was putting together a little book of student stories, and he wanted me to uh, do some illustrations for him. So I went up to show him the illustrations, and it turns out they were having auditions for a one-act play. And he said, well, when, you know, after you looked at my stuff, and that never went, that project never went anywhere, by the way. <laughs> And uh, he looked at my stuff and he said, well, you want to stay around and audition for the play? And I thought, 
you know, maybe this is something I could do. And so I watched for a while and then I read for the show and I didn't get in that play, but then I auditioned again for the spring play and I got in that one. And I really enjoyed that. And, you know, I started to make friends and I, uh, uh, kind of got the bug. I mean, it's like Edith Evans, I think, who's a old English actress said, you don't aspire to the theater. It's something you catch like the flu. (laughs) And so I sort of caught the bug and, uh, so next year, my senior year, I was in three shows. And when I went to college, I was still interested in the theater. I went to the University of Minnesota and I was kind of interested in, I thought maybe art would be what I would focus on, uh, studio art. Uh, but then the theater department was really interesting and I got involved in some things there. And But I never was interested in doing the scenery at that time for some reason, either in high school or initially in college. I just never paid. I was interested in acting. I never paid it, which is hard to (laughs) hard to understand now. But at the time, that seemed to be my focus. So uh, at the end of my freshman year in college, I had been in some little shows and a a couple of university production, small parts. I had heard about this summer theater called the Stagecoach Players, which was uh, south of Minneapolis, and it was run by two of the professors at the theater department at the U, uh, this choreographer and director who was the artistic director at the summer theater, and then the scene design teacher at the university, the professor that was in charge of that and did a lot of the shows, was the managing director of this summer theater. So I auditioned for it, and uh, to my surprise, I got hired to be an apprentice. So the apprentices got paid $15 a week, uh, which was a car for, basically it was transportation money because it's quite a drive out there. What what year is this about? We're talking about 1965. Wow. 1965. And uh, so I got hired to be an apprentice. There were about 10 or 15 apprentices and there were six people in the company and they got paid more and they got the bigger roles in the show. So the, the theater did three shows, 40 performances each. So it was like, you know, it was like be having a real job in the theater. Yeah. But the other part of it was we were all expected to work on the scenery and costumes for, for the shows. We, and, uh, you know, this is the thing I had never paid much attention to, but uh, the first day we went out there for a work day to do some stuff, there was a guy painting a backdrop on a big frame out behind the theater under a shed roof. And, uh, I, you know, so I had to do something for my work for to, to help with the scenery. And so I said to him, you know, I was an art major. I have some skills with the brush and painting and stuff like that. Can I help you? And so I did. And turned out I was actually kind of good at it. And I got to really like it. And before the first show opened, Wendell Josel, who was the scene design professor at the University of Minnesota and also the managing director at this theater, uh, said, I say, I heard you were an art major. Uh, Do you think you could paint uh, a picture of the Statue of Liberty on this piece of canvas that we're putting down out here on the ground? So he gave me a picture and he showed me how to grid it off and blow it. I was wound up being about 12 feet high. And uh, I painted it crawling around on the floor on my hands and knees on top of this uh, this uh, piece of muslin basically stapled onto the ground and stretched. Wow. And uh, so I gridded the picture off and I blew it up. 
and drew it on the muslin and painted it. And then we cut it out and it got glued onto a piece of bobbinette scrim. And for the big finale at the end of the show, this first show, which was the streets of New York, uh, got hoisted up out of the orchestra pit and, you know, grand patriotic finale, American flag in the background and all that kind of stuff. So that was my first piece of scenery that I painted. And I mean, it was, it, I had never, I had never done anything like that before, but it turned out well enough to use in the show. I mean, with and, with, with uh, your so with, with your critical eye today, looking back on it, what what do you think of it? Uh, I have pictures of it, and it's not it's not bad. It's not it isn't as good as I think maybe I would do now, but uh, but it looked like the Statue of Liberty. It looked like the Statue of Liberty, and twelve feet tall, right? I mean, wow. it was not something small, yeah. you know, to the top of the torch, anyway, sure. and. Uh, uh, you know, and Josel, they were happy enough with it to use it in the show. If, if it hadn't been any good, I don't think it would have made the cut. Uh, but anyway, so I got the, the rest of the summer went on and I got more and more interested in the scenery as well as being in the show. And I it was it was actually, a you know, a transformative experience for me doing that that particular summer because it was just a great place to be. I mean, you can, you know, the Disneyland aficionados can imagine a place kind of like the Golden Horseshoe. That's what it was. You know, it was turn of the century decor and uh, paintings on the wall and a bar in the back, that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, then as I went through my college years, I got more and more interested in doing scenery. And Josel, Wendell Josel, the guy from the stagecoach, the managing director, got me a job uh, working in the scene shop at the university and also then designing three plays in the arena theater. So I did that, uh, you know, very inexperienced, but somehow I was able to blunder through it and, and get that accomplished. And I went back to the stagecoach three more summers or two more summers rather. And then after I graduated from college, I did a summer on the showboat, which was uh, the University of Minnesota sort of equivalent summer theater that they had on the Mississippi River. Wow. And, uh, but the bad thing that happened at this point was I was going to get drafted. You know, I remember the time. So it was 1968. So I was looking at, uh, at that facing me and I passed my physical. So I was pretty certain I was not going to be able to get out of it. So I, I have to say, I mean, 1968, that is a, a hot year. I mean, yeah. that, that is, yeah. I mean, you had the assassination of Martin Luther yes. King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. We were in the thick of the Vietnam War. There was I, protests going on. What was that? Yes. What was that all like uh, where you were? Well, it was it was it was, you know, it was the hippie times and uh, summer of love and all that stuff and protests of the war. And on the you know, I was living in a house right next to a guy that was doing like a guerrilla theater thing in the street. I was working at the very genteel and respectable showboat that summer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of way, I couldn't really find a job. I was just kind of waiting to get drafted. And it was chaotic. You know, the music was changing. Everything was changing. Uh, everybody's views on things were changing. I was not a, a fan of the war in Vietnam, but my dad being in the military, uh, it was kind of a conflict for me in a way. Uh, but so 
what was your yeah. dad still in the military at that point? Well, he he and I got out. I wound up getting drafted, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But he and I wound up getting out at about the same time. Okay. He retired as a full colonel uh, in 1970, uh, which is when I got out as well. Uh, so while I was waiting to get drafted, a couple of things happened that affected my career. They, uh, I I got a job designing a set in a little. Uh, community theater in St. Paul. And so I did that and I got paid $250 for that. That was the first time I ever really got paid. Uh, and then I got a job working as an assistant painter at the St. Paul Civic Opera. Uh, and there they were painting, you know, like 30 by 50 drops for a production of Guys and Dolls. And they painted on the floor. And that's the first time I ever saw that done but that's the way most scene painting is done actually in in a lot of uh the big scene shops you know like in new york and whatever because it's easier to paint on the floor a lot of people don't quite understand that but once you get used to it uh you know there's a lot of reasons why it's easier to paint big drops and scenery on the floor paint doesn't run for one thing uh so anyway and then the the last thing that happened to me is i i i did that job at the civic opera for about uh, maybe three weeks. Uh, and then I got called by this friend of mine who had gotten a job at a new theater outside of Minneapolis called Chanhassen. It was a dinner theater. And they had a couple of theaters and he had gotten the job as a resident designer and he wanted me to be his assistant. And I said, well, you know, I'm getting drafted in probably a couple of months. And uh, he said, well, that's fine. Come out and work and, until you, you can't work anymore. And so I I worked on two shows for him and then I did get drafted and wound up in the army. And so I was gone for two years, but I, you know, I had gotten my foot in the door at that theater. And, uh, so I was gone for two years. Was your, came was, your back. Da was your dad in the army? He was in the army. Yeah. So, so it was natural for you to go into the army then. Well, I didn't want to go in. For, I, it wasn't, a, I tried ROTC in college and didn't like it. Hmm and uh didn't finish it so i i didn't want to i wasn't going to go in as an officer i went in as a private e1 you know the lowest uh rank and i got through it i didn't get killed and uh did you actually go over to vietnam yeah i did right and where were you stationed i was stationed at uh chulai which is like 30 miles south of da nang oh well i was in the i was you know, they they put all the college graduates in the infantry at that time. Uh, so that's I was I started out as an 11 Bravo, which is a rifleman. And then I got switched over to a mortar crew, 11 Charlie. And uh, I I did wind up going to Vietnam as a mortar man. Uh, and here again, you know, my art skills helped me out because I was out in the field. I was in the field for like uh, maybe four or five weeks or four or five months uh, on a mortar crew. But then we got moved to a new fire base and we were building these hooches, we call them, places to, places where you live, you know, like uh, bunkers, basically, that were sandbagged and everything. But I made a little sign, a little cartoon sign. Uh, our gun, the mortar, was nine gun. And so I did a little cartoon sign uh, with... 
this nine and our squad leader was named his nickname was the rat and so i did this rat and fatigues you know a little cartoon sort of sitting on a on nine and sitting on the gun leaning sleeping against the against the thing and so we we i did it in grease pencils on wood because that's what we had to work with so i got nailed up on the door of our hooch and the first sergeant of the company saw it and he liked it he thought it was funny and so he got me he wanted me to do malaria posters for him in uh, a grease pencil on you know take your malaria pill kind of a thing and then he sent me down to the rear area to paint a sign that he was going to give to the battalion first sergeant for the battalion headquarters and so eventually i got it it allowed me to get made a clerk so first i was because the first sergeant liked me and i could do this artwork for him when he wanted to and so I wound up being made a clerk. First, I was the mail clerk, and then I was a company clerk, sort of Radar O'Reilly kind of. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that took you out of combat. took me out of the field, right? Yeah, so you weren't you weren't in now, arms way. Now I was working in an office, and then that then also permitted me if they had this thing where if you if I'm talking too long about this, we can skip over to something. No, no, no. Okay. I, I, f I find it fascinating because okay. you know what? Yeah, I, I find it fascinating because all of these experiences play into you as an right. artist, as an artist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I was worried. Now I'm working in an office with a typewriter and doing paperwork and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I was, I, I was really lucky in that respect. And, and uh, so anyway, they, oh, I was going to say the thing that it also helped me do was they had this thing uh, where if you came back from Vietnam with less than five months to, to do, you could get out of the army early and only have put in 19 months. And since I was in a situation where I was feeling relatively safe, I extended my tour in Vietnam for two months so that when I came back, I could get right out. Uh, and so that's what I did. I was so I was actually in Vietnam for 14 months. And then when I came back, I could ETS expected time of separation. I could ETS right away. And so I got out. So now I'm I got out of the army and I eventually my dad had retired just before I got out. So they were now living in San Francisco. So I went to San Francisco, and then after a little while, I went back to Minnesota. And, and when I got back to Minnesota, my friend Warner, who had hired me to work at that theater that we talked about, the dinner theater, was decided to leave that job and go back to college. So he was going to go to Carnegie Tech and get a master's degree. So now the designer job is open. So they offered me a job, but it wasn't, you know, Warner took me out there, and I met the artistic director, and we talked about it. and. Uh, uh, I was pretty, I was really quite inexperienced still, I would say, uh, but they hired me to be in the show that they were doing. The show theater was not doing well, so they, they were going to do uh, a French farce, uh, it's called A Flea in Her Ear. They had been doing musicals, but now they were going to try to cut back on expenses by doing a show that didn't have an orchestra. And... Uh, but I was and I was not going to be the designer, but I was going to be the assistant to the designer. They had this great guy who I had known a little bit in Minneapolis before I got drafted and fantastically talented uh, 
designer. So he was going to design the set and I was going to be in the show and be his assistant. And the time went by and uh, then he backed out. The designer backed out of the show and couldn't do it. And uh, Mm. so now I'm the designer, right? But all the time to do the work is kind of gone. It's a French farce with like, you know, two sets, seven doors in the first one that are slamming all the time, people running in and out. And the second door was the second act was a uh, house of ill repute with a revolving bed. So it had some complexity to it. And now, you know, <laughs> this myself being quite inexperienced, I uh, had to design the set, paint the set, be in the show, go to rehearsals. And, uh, you know, I, I it almost killed me. But, uh, you know, in the end, we got it done. And the show was a big hit. And save the theater. And, and you know what? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Isn't that true? I mean, <laughs> you were you were of, yeah. you were in boot camp there. Right. That, was, that was that was your boot camp in theater. Right. It was the beginnings <laughs> of it. But now I had the job as a designer. They didn't get somebody else. I'm now I'm the designer at the theater. Still woefully inexperienced, and I, they I got to get out of being in the show when the second show that came up in, in the smaller theater downstairs. And so I did that. And the one I did, the flea in her ear, the, was not very good, I didn't think, but it didn't fall down and it was adequate. And like I said, the, the show was a big hit, which tells you something about how important the scenery is to whether or not people like the show. Uh, so then I did another small one and that was not so great, but by the third one, I did on the big stage again, uh, I was getting better. And so I spent a year learning, you know, when I, when I graduated from college, I had really only had two classes in, in scene design. There was one, which was a stagecraft class, which is sort of about drafting and learning to draft a little bit. And that was all I had ever done of that sort of thing. And then the second one was a scene design class that Josel taught, my, my guy who helped me from the stagecoach. And, uh, and that, you know, you learned how to make a perspective drawing and you learned how to do a ground plan and you designed like five or six different shows and different styles. But so that was the extent of my experience, plus my little bit of painting and being an assistant. So I learned everything out of books now. I, you know, I was scrambling to, figure it out. And Warner had left all his old drawings. So I went to school on those and I figured out how to do it. And I'd say it took me about five years to really get good at it. But and at this the is, end of this, five years, and, and, and was this all in uh, Minnesota? Minneapolis, right. Or, really? So, so you, you spent five years working in theater in Minneapolis. I spent 14 years working in theater in Minneapolis. And, and then but that, it took me five years to get good at the job. And I'd say the last nine years, I was really, you know, starting to really get the hang of it. I learned to draft well. I learned I was also the scenic artist at the theater. So I learned to paint well, which, you know, scenic, it's all about faux finishes, painting drops. Uh, you had to draft the show. Uh, I had to boss the paint crew. Uh, I had, we had a resident, you know, technical, some technical director and a carpenters, but 
So we did everything for those 14 years. Uh, I did maybe 50 or 60 shows in that context. And, and how, how did you how, how did you get from Minneapolis to Anna? Well, now here's this. I, uh, so now I've worked there for 14 years and I am uh, almost 40 years old, no, 39 years old. And I'm working really hard, and a lot, there's a lot of physical work involved in that stuff. Yeah. I was also freelancing uh, and doing other shows on the outside at other theaters uh, and doing some other, you know, kind of freelance artwork. And I was working so hard, and I was not making a ton of money, and I had a wife and two kids, and I was trying to think of how could I, how could I improve my lot in life? How could I make more money and maybe do a little less work. And so I read an article in theater crafts about people in about job possibilities in Hollywood, working in television and film. And I knew someone who had done that very thing. He'd gone from the theater into working in TV film. So I called him up and said, you know, I'm thinking about trying to make this leap from working in the theater in Minneapolis to maybe trying California and seeing if I could get some work out there. And he had gotten a job working in sitcoms. Uh, he worked for uh, Embassy Television, which was, it had been previously Norman Lear's company, Tandem. Mm -hmm. And now it was Embassy. And they had done, you know, it had done all in the family. And uh, they were doing different strokes and silver spoons and those kinds of shows at that time. So this is uh, uh, 1985. And uh, so I called my friend, Dal Delu was his name, uh, up, and he eventually became the production designer for Cheers, the sitcom, you know, long-run sitcom. But now he was working for Embassy. So I said, I'm thinking about trying to get a job in TV. What do you think? Do you always said, you know, people with theater background are highly prized out here because of their work ethic and all the skills that they have. And uh, if you want to come out, give it a shot. You know, this guy that I'm one of the production designers here, I think is going to be looking for a new assistant. So you want to come out, you can stay at our house and uh, I'll take you over there and get you on the lot, introduce you to, his name was Don Roberts. He had been the original art director and all in the family and Maude and all those, you know, Norman Lear sitcoms. So I went out there and, uh, Got, I got my portfolio together. I had a really good portfolio now because I had all those years of working in the theater. Yeah. Lots of pictures and uh, drafting samples and all that stuff. So I went out there and I got a job the first day uh, working as Don Roberts' assistant. On He had taken over different strokes, and so he was going to redesign it. And so that was my job my first show my wife and kids stayed back in minneapolis for a while until i got established until we could sell our house mm. and so i did two years of sitcoms and uh the first year i did different strokes and then the thing about sitcoms and tv art direction so i, I had to learn that job uh which was you know basically it was a job that you, you drafted the sets for the production designer, he'd give you a little sketch and you'd draft them. And then you'd go around to the prop houses and pick out the decor, the furniture and the stuff that went on the walls. And then you'd take the, the drawings around to the shops in Hollywood and get the set built. And then you'd be there to load the set in 
and you would uh, dress it with all the stuff that you picked out at the prop houses. Mm-hmm. And every week you do it like you had the basic set that was put up, but then you had swing sets every week. So that's how that worked. Uh, that And so I did the first year of that and then different strokes got canceled. And uh, I, I was going to ask you on, on the sitcoms, is that something where you worked for 25, 30 weeks out of the year or? Yeah, how, there were like 20, there were like 22 episodes and you do like three, three episodes in a row. You do one a week and then you'd have a week off maybe. And then you do three more. And so you'd get through the, you know, 22 to 24 episodes, something like that. And it would last about 30 weeks. Right. And then you'd go on hiatus and you were out of work. So the first year uh, when I went on hiatus, I went on unemployment, which is what a lot of people did. And then I worked on our house, which we had bought. We had moved from Minneapolis now to to uh, L.A. And uh, we had a house. So I, I worked on the house and did some improvements on that. And then I went back for a second season. And this year I worked on a show called What a Country. Yakov Smirnoff uh, uh-huh. about immigrants uh, going to uh, night school. And so I did that, and but that didn't get picked up. And so now I was off and I didn't know what I was going to be coming back to exactly. Although I thought, you know, I'm still working for the same guy, Don Roberts. Uh, but I saw a story in the paper that said uh, WDI was hiring people. Uh, to work at Imagineering. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll, the, the other part that I didn't mention is that one of the guys that I worked with at uh, Embassy, one of the other art directors, he worked on Who's the Boss? Uh, and he was the significant other of Claire Graham, who was the art director at Disneyland Entertainment okay. uh, at the time. And so I thought, well, you know, I've got this connection. I know this guy who works at Disneyland. Maybe if I call him, he can uh, get me an interview at WDI, and maybe I can pick up, you know, six weeks of work there on whatever project it is. They said they were hiring, so maybe I can get past the secretaries if Claire can give me a name, somebody I can call. So I called Claire up. I got his number from Bob Green, who was uh, the guy that I had worked with in Embassy. And he said, well, you know, I'm hiring people. Why don't you bring your portfolio down here? And uh, uh, I need people to work on this overlay of Disneyland that we're doing. So I went down uh, with my portfolio. As as strange as it seems, they were in the off season at at Disneyland. The attendance was not so good. So they were doing these overlays, one of them. The one, the first one that I worked on was called State Fair, where we, you know, we put fair a Ferris wheel up at the hub. We put Ferris wheel on the train station. We put a high dive tower at front of Small World. We uh, uh, did a bunch of things to make Disneyland with this State Fair overlay. So anyway, I went down with my portfolio and I showed it to Claire and got a job immediately started the next day. I've always been lucky <laughs> in finding work like that. I mean, it's, you know, every, every time uh, I went into something, I got something out of it. And so he hired me to work on State Fair. I was not a staff person. I was just a consultant, 
working on day rate. And my first job on State Fair was designing the pig races at <laughs> Big Thunder Ranch. So it was just something they do at state fairs. The, the, they have, you, you, hired, you hired this guy who came in with his pig race track. And my job was to figure out the way to sort of Disneyfy it a little bit. And put up, we put up a big tent at Big Thunder Ranch, a red and white striped tent, and a pig race uh, track. Uh, and I laid that all out and figured out how it would fit and how big could the tent be and all that kind of stuff. And we put up game booths in a lot of the planners and I designed the game booths and uh, that kind of thing. So it was like six weeks of work and then the show ran for six weeks uh, to try to generate better attendance at Disneyland in the off season. And then we did a one called Blast of the Past, which was like a step back to the 50s and 60s where we put up a you know a beach thing in front of small world uh yeah. with uh beach boys type entertainment and there was a we had vintage cars that we put out and it was a lot of fun actually doing these things because you were loading in all this you know i went from doing scenery on on sound stages to doing all this stuff outside i mean we we put up this huge high dive tower with it, got the crane into small world and hoisted it up. And we had there, we had made a high dive tank for this guy to jump from a hundred foot uh, uh, radio tower that uh, we put up there and guide them, you know, had to figure out guy wires with the Disneyland welders to, you know, it was all this uh, really interesting outdoor, great big, uh stuff in blast of the past we did a giant turntable at uh at uh, town square and uh i think for one of them uh we did a huge jukebox at the hub a giant jukebox with a dj in it for for blast of the past and you know it was all that kind of stuff and so when the time i got a call in to from don roberts he wanted me to come back and work on a show, strangely enough, called The Charmings about uh, Snow White and her prince who are living in suburban uh, suburban setting. And, uh, you know, it was six weeks of work only. And so I said, well, you know, I, 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 he was kind of annoyed with me, but I did not go back. I decided I would stay at Disneyland because it was more fun. Uh, right. It was more like the stuff I had done before. And there wasn't any guarantee of a job, really. I was still, you know, just working as a as a freelancer on day rate. But I stayed there and I did some other projects. Uh, and uh, after about a year, I got a staff job. And so now I was a Disney employee and uh, I wound up staying there for 24 years, as it turned out. With so that's how I made that that leap and, and and that certainly is a uh a, a better gig than uh constantly going you know being furloughed on uh shows yeah no i like i and it was it was more interesting it was just more there was so much more variety and uh you know i did shows in vegas i did uh uh a couple of show west things uh, where i first met barnett ritchie who was the director of phantasmic and uh, 
So, yeah, there was all kinds of stuff going on. We did shows at the Queen Mary. We did, uh, uh, we put up, State Fair came back twice and Blast of the Past, I think, I think we did yeah. twice also. And there was a circus fantasy overlay that we did. And, and then uh, uh, when did uh, Fantasmic first pop up? Well, Fantasmic was a situation they decided to do something like that because the there was no new attraction uh scheduled for the park they had done splash mountain like in the 88 or 89 or something like that right and but for like 1990 92 there was no new attraction scheduled so they thought they would like to do some kind of big entertainment show and they had always talked about doing a river show uh, I mean, I saw some drawings once of something that, you know, took off from Big Thunder Ranch. It was some sort of gold mining, gold panning thing, but I don't think it went any further than just the drawings. So anyway, um, they decided to do some kind of entertainment river show and nobody knew exactly what it was going to be. And they tapped Barnett Ritchie, who was like their most senior show director there to come up with something for it. And one thing that was we had seen at that time uh, was these water screens, these giant water screens, mist screens, they were called. And uh, we saw a video of them. There was a company in France called Aquatique that had come up with this technology that they would shoot this huge fan of water in the air and wound up with a, like a 40-foot surface, and then they would do rear projections on them. And the the video looked fantastic. And the great thing was, it was like, it became like a screen that was suddenly there, and then suddenly gone. So you could project film on this on these screens. And uh, it was really uh, stunning, because they, they also worked like scrims. So if there was something behind them, you could see that as well. And so that became sort of the wow technology that sort of set the idea in motion. So Barnett came up with, uh, she, you, this is a person that can't be given too much credit for how that show turned out because she thought it up based on the idea of projecting Disney animation on this water screen. Mm -hmm. And from that, she put together this whole idea of Mickey Mouse and his imagination and tying in uh, boats on the river, uh, stuff on land. She brought up the idea of Mickey imagining all this stuff and uh, a giant fire-breathing dragon that would set the river on fire. So I went through a, and she thought this up uh, and it didn't change a whole bunch from her first concept, but we did get, we did have a, a series of, and I got assigned to it because they wanted a staff person on it, uh, because the staff person's salary was paid for, right? uh, and they did, they didn't, I didn't have to get charged to the show. And I could also, Claire came to me and said, you know, do you want to do this show? It's potentially, you know, it could be as much as a year's commitment, but that's all you'll do for that time period. 
So I said, yeah, there wasn't none of the other guys could do it because they were busy with other things. So I got assigned to it. And uh, and, and this was initially going to be only uh, have a two year run. Is that it was right? only going to have it was going to have a two year run. And then it would, you know, there would be other attractions coming along. And so we went through a whole uh, development process where the show had to ultimately get approved by yeah. Michael Eisner and you know, the way things went then. And uh, so we had a, a parade of people that had various technologies to sell that came and made presentations for Barnett. You know, she always, she sort of knew the bones of what she wanted the show to be, but we wanted to have, you know, high tech stuff in it. Like the guy who, figured out how to set the river on fire was a guy who had done that like in front of the Mirage in Las Vegas. There was a fountain that got set on fire. So he came right. and made a big presentation about how could he set the, he could set the river on fire. And by the way, we could have a volcano that would erupt on the island. <laughs> and, uh, all this stuff that he could do for us. There were guys that uh, laser technology, uh, dancing waters, fountains, because uh, it was going to be a water show uh me fog you know how could we cover the river with fog uh they made all these presentations and then barnett figured out how to incorporate all that stuff into the show she also was involved in the music with bruce healy who wrote the score for the show uh, -huh. uh and she i think she wrote all the lyrics that uh, were added to it uh we were going to have boats and that was sort of my uh, boats, the watercraft, uh, the props, uh, stuff like that. That was my uh, overdressing the Columbia to look like a pirate ship. How how, uh, how 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 long has has Fantasmic been running now? Well, it started in ninety two. So what is that? It's uh, so so that would be thirty years. Twenty four. Yeah. 30 years. Wow. 30 years. And, and obviously through the 30 years, it's, you know, it, it, were you involved in any of the uh, refreshes of the. Uh, of yeah, the I was. I was involved in the refreshes. And the, the thing you got to remember, too, is the amount of infrastructure that were required to do that show. I mean, the river was drained and down and being uh, reworked for about like six months. WDI did a lot of that structure on the island, the cider mill that contains the uh, the the dragon. The dragon. Well, that, that's a whole kind of funny story with the dragon too, because uh, they they had know, a lot I, of problems. They, they had a lot of problems with the dragon. Well, the initially, the initial dragon was something that I came up with because we were going to have. In, in the initial stages of this, we were going to have a, a uh, full-on animated dragon figure, like kind of like what they have now, what we have now. But uh, we had like three companies give us bids for a big animated figure like that. And I think the job was going to go to a company called Kinetics that was in Florida. Mm -hmm. But it was it turns out to be way too expensive. We couldn't afford it. So they made a whole proposal and did drawings and everything. And 
I don't know, it was, you know, a million and a half dollars or something like that. And that was not within the budget that we had. So then we thought this guy who was helping me named Butch Flannery, who was like an engineer from Walt Disney World, and he was really instrumental in making a lot of that stuff work, you know, figuring out the boats and Mm -hmm. the watercraft and all those things. But so so the, the animated dragon is now out. We can't afford that. So. And we had already constructed the dragon pit uh, in the front of the island with a big door that went back and it was like 24 feet deep. So what, whatever we did had to work in 24 feet. So then we thought, well, maybe we could do some kind of inflatable drag uh, that would come up on a lift and it would have some sort of minimal structure inside and it would have a rotational aspect and that would be cheaper. And so we were going to have Kinetics make the lift for it. And it turned out now, because the time was so short, the lift was also too expensive. So so that didn't work. Wow. So I thought, well, I wonder if we could do something with a man lift, like a genie lift. And so I got one of the guys in our shop down there to make me up a little wooden version of a genie lift. I took the head. What, what, uh, what is what is a genie? What is a genie lift? Well, it's like a man lift, you know, with a Cherry it, it has a scissor lift with an arm that extends out the oh, top. Okay, so so, so it, the it, scissor it, lift raises it up, and then yeah. the arm extends. And there's typically there's a basket that a guy rides in, and he yeah. goes up to do work on something in the air. So I had to make. I had this, uh, one of our guys over in the shop make me a little version. And a wooden version of a genie lift. Uh, I cut the head off uh, one of the maquettes for the the animated drag, the fully animated realistic dragon we were going to do. And I took it home over the weekend. And I rigged up, stuck the dragon head on top of the genie lift. I rigged up a bunch of like chains that would go back to some drag some big wings and from those i hung strips of fabric and uh so that's and that's what the dragon wound up being for like the first uh 20 years of the show it was a uh, you know it it the, the whole deal with it was that it had to be 40 feet tall so with the genie lift instead of using the full depth of the pit we put in a platform like at 10 feet down, the whole thing kind of had to fold up. So you couldn't have much structure to it. Yeah. Uh, so it unfolded out of the pit and deployed itself. And I used bungee cords uh, to hold the strips of fabric. So they went from the head back to uh, positions on the lift. And then there were big wings that came up out of the front out of the sides of the pit and folded out and they got flapped by performers and, and so that and, became and, the dragon and if and, it was lit well you know it was reasonably effective yeah i was gonna say i mean with the lighting it's nighttime and yeah. and you did some fog effects right well there were lots there was lots of fog and there were some and but the other thing was we could afford it yeah. And, you know, we did some animation to the head uh, and the the neck could articulate because of the boom. Yeah. And uh, the the other funny aspect to it was that uh, it needed to shoot flame out of its mouth so that it could set the river on fire. 
And the pyro guys had figured out that um, Primora, this the stuff that is your coffee creamer, yeah, uh, it has a very flammable aspect to it. Really? So they rigged up this. <laughs> it's like a coffee can hooked up to compressed air, filled with Cremora in the back of the dragon's throat, and the. Compressed air shoots the cremora out, and it was ignited by an igniter, and it made a pretty credible dragon flame. Don't try it's this at home, it. people. Do not try right. this at home. It's better than it's flash paper. A, <laughs> <laughs> it's not as good as the uh, the current dragon. We we finally, after you know, I guess it was in like two thousand and eight. We got some money. And we did the big full-on animated dragon, and I designed it, and and uh, we did the maquette in our shop, and then Garner Holt built it, and there was a lot of trouble, a lot of problems with that. Yeah, so I think I think I think it was the 2008 revamp of the show that I got involved with, because and again I I was telling you right before we we started recording. I, I only, uh, I was involved with the restoration. I was part of the restoration team of all the classic Disney animated films. Right. So, so we supplied the new high resolution restored animation footage. Uh, we swapped that in for, for what was there previously, which I think was on film initially. So uh, we, we, we swapped in the digital files. So it just made it, you know, crisper and, and better looking images on the right. projections. Well, and when, the, when they went to, you know, initially the film was, it was three 70 millimeter projectors. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the giant film cabinets. And uh, one funny thing about the film cabinets was, uh, we rehearsed the show for like three months outside at night. Yeah. Night after night after night. And the film cabinets could only go in one direction. So when you're rehearsing with the film, it, it was like 22 minutes of film. If you made it, if a mistake was made, you couldn't go back. They right. had to just run the film to the end and then start over. Yeah. Cause it was one giant loop. It was like a 14, right. 14 mile piece of uh, film. Uh, that was looped in a cabinet, which was, you know, how they did a lot of the shows down there. Even, you know, even the uh, Soren attraction in California right. Adventure had a, had a loop, uh, you know, a film looped in a box. Uh, I mean, huge, a huge box, you know, with the film just going up and down, up and down through pulleys uh, as one giant loop. So it, it's amazing how the digital technology really improved all of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that made a huge difference. I mean, and the projection was brighter too. I mean, even with the, the 70 millimeter projectors, uh, the, the, there's no comparison with the, the digital stuff. Yeah. So uh, from your standpoint, uh, how long is, is Fantasmic going to continue to run? Because you've retired. Yeah. Well, no, I didn't. And, and it's, it's been, it's been really seriously redone since i retired i mean i i didn't have anything to do with the current version of it with, with the latest version okay. yeah so that's got all the you know the super duper found i mean i've i've i haven't actually seen it in person i've seen it on uh on youtube and uh 
you know, the projections and the new fountains that they've got are really fantastic. And they've got the new uh, the crocodile, unfortunately. We redid the crocodile at the same time we did the new dragon. Uh-huh. And uh, I, w- I never liked the way the first one had turned out. But so now that got cut because the uh, it's now Pirates of the Caribbean as opposed to Captain Hook and Peter Pan. Yeah. Yeah. Al John, you've seen the Fantasmic, haven't you? I love it. You got any questions for Tom? You know, uh, not not so much. I mean, you know, it's just amazing how these ideas take form and through committee and meeting after meeting after meeting finally come to life. And I was there to see, you know, all the different iterations. Well, most most all of the different iterations at Disneyland, which were, which were amazing. But um, how were you involved at all with any of the other versions of Fantasmic uh, through Walt Disney World or through Tokyo Disney? Or anything? I did though. I worked on the one at Walt Disney World. Yeah, I I don't think that's quite as successful as the one in Disneyland because. Disneyland is just so cool because it comes out of nowhere. It's places that you could have walked on uh, during the day if you were out on the island. And uh, I designed the mountain and all that stuff at Walt Disney World. And uh, the dragon there, strangely enough, they did the version of the the man lift dragon, but they built it from scratch instead of using a genie lift, which is what we did at uh, Disneyland, they built uh, their own version of it. Well, partly it's a little different because it it comes out of the mountain. It doesn't come up out of a pit. So it's a little different situation there as well. Right. No, I think both, both are, both are great. And um, I know that the Walt Disney world fans love their version, just like the Disneyland version. Uh, Disneylanders love that version. I love them both. They're both different, um, but you're so uh, diplomatic. Well, look, I, I'm. <laughs> hey, uh, I was an annual pass holder for both parks, so I can't, you know, I, I can't choose one over the other. They're both great in their own way, but I can only imagine how difficult things are could be when um, the dragon or something like that happens to fail during a performance. Um, oh, and yeah. different things that the performers have to do to to kind of do workarounds when that happens. Um, was there ever a time designing the show that you had to consider uh, what happens when a, a animatronic or something like that fails and what, what, what is the protocol for that, that kind of stuff? Well, there, I don't know that. Yeah. I, I was not ever really involved in the day to day running. I mean, I used to see the show reports and there, there's nothing more horrible than you know, the dragon got stuck up. And uh, there was nothing to do about it, but there's nothing to do except really finish the show if you can. Uh, Because if something goes wrong with a a piece of equipment as big as that, I mean, it really takes a couple of days to fix it. What was your favorite, what was your favorite part um, that you designed for, for any of the versions of the show? Um, And I guess it could be, the same for both uh, Walt Disney World or Disneyland, or or maybe something completely different. Uh, uh, well, the, I I think the the great sequence in the show, the the one that we did uh, from from the time the 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 couples in the barges. One of, well, one of the better things I think was my idea was to 
to do the mini lights on the couples barges, you know, the electrical parade kind of technology is, yeah. you know, you, we, we designed these things. Basically what, what she wanted was stages that floated on mist, you know, they were up in the air and you couldn't see that there was a boat. You couldn't see that there was uh, anything holding them up. And they were, we did a bunch of tests and we came to the conclusion that five feet in the air was the, the right height for the stage. Uh, the for the performance barge stages where the couples danced and where the monkeys uh, dance around during the jungle book sequence at the beginning. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, trying to disguise the the sides of the boat to make it look like it's sort of magical was, was tricky. But I really felt like the putting the mini lights on there and the, now now they're they're. Uh, LEDs, there were no LEDs at the time. So now they're super programmable and everything. But at the time, all they could do was come on or chase. But I really thought they looked great on the water when there was a little bit of fog and stuff because uh, they reflected off the water and they really distracted you from them. And it's a small thing, but I thought it was really successful and effective. You know, some of the small things are the are are, are the, some of the most effective uh, magical things that you can experience. Yeah, 100%. I think that that's a great illusion. And, you know, when you're going through those kind of dream sequences and you see them kind of float on the water, especially if you're, you know, sitting kind of midway through, um, you know, the amphitheater, if you will, um, you get that effect. I think that's really cool. So when you're when you're working this this kind of stuff out um, with your stagecraft, um, how 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 did how did it the this whole thing when you're when you're concepting it and your story i guess you're storyboarding the entire time this situation and and what you guys are envisioning with the the beats almost like a film you have these different storyboards you're you're doing um what was that process like and how long did it really take you to kind of get the story and everything woven together with all the things you you talked about earlier yeah well it was i i think uh was maybe I think there were six, six months of of that process, and the, but the good thing was Barnett really gets a clear vision of the show in her head, and she sticks to it. I mean, you know, there were a bunch of things that were difficult. It was just a whole series of difficult problems to solve. Like, how are you going to do Ka the snake on the on the uh, river stage? You know, with the it's 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 a fiberglass eyes with an inflatable nose and then the the pods that make up the body and the course that that thing has to run is incredibly difficult i mean it has to go across across the porch of the cider mill around in a circle doubles back on itself and down and you know there's it was really difficult to come up with something that would make the body and not uh look ridiculous and it, it it evolved from the first idea that I, I had which was sort of hard pieces into the more inflatable softer things that we have now but just solving all and you know, the flower petals were tricky to figure out you know how the how how did you how can the dancers support them without injuring themselves and that kind of thing um and so I you know I did a bunch of presentation boards of the different beats of the show that Barnett would use when she would explain to people what it was we were going to do. And, 
you know, it was a, we had weekly production meetings that we would bash through all this stuff and try to figure out better ways to do things. What, what's thinking that, of, uh, I, I was going to ask you, Tom, what, once the show opens, what do you do then? Are, are you guys monitoring the show uh, on a weekly basis? Are you getting reports from uh, well, I would, yeah, I would that? see the show reports, uh, but I really didn't work on it once. I mean, once it, once it opened, I was on to doing many, many other things. Yeah. You know? I mean, when, when a show like that does open, is it, is it sort of a handoff uh, to the operations team and, yes. and the entertainment folks and, and like, okay, there's the show it's yours. And then do you guys periodically check in on it? Do you, would you go to Disneyland at night to just stand in the crowd and see it? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you, you get, uh, there's so many, uh, you move on to other things, you know, you generally have two or three things that was unusual in that I was only working on that one thing for so long. I mean, typically when I would work down there, I would be, involved in two or three things overlapping and uh trying to juggle all that stuff but you know i would see the show reports and you know if something wasn't working i would try to get in there and uh make sense out of it yeah what what was uh were there any kind of funny things that have happened like guests falling into the river or <laughs> things like that happening no you know somebody i always like to ask this question because you know most people you know that go down to the parks don't necessarily see some of the hijinks that go on you know well i think one of the funny things about that show is that the uh it became so popular so fast uh when it opened that people would people would start lining up on the riverbank at noon yeah. to stake out spots to see it and it started to drive the operations people crazy because they would be in the planners they would be you know just anywhere they could stand to watch the show uh, they tried to clear them out and it just didn't work and eventually you know they did a whole revamp of uh the riverbank to you know they they banked all the the uh, walkways so that they were higher at the back and they, they made it into a bit of a subtle amphitheater yeah made yeah. places where people could be and watch the show but initially uh it was just they hadn't figured out the crowd control system yet because they weren't expecting it to be so popular yeah, and and you know something one one of the reasons why they decided to put World of Color into the California Adventure Park was to get uh, some of the crowd over to that park in the evenings uh, to see that show to kind of flatten out the crowds between the two parks because prior to doing that the uh, uh, California Adventure be a ghost town at night because everybody was in Disneyland to see the fantastic show and the fireworks. The fireworks, right. And and yeah. if it wasn't running, the, the fireworks would get so crowded that uh, it would be insane to be over there. So the, yeah. they're all kind of codependent in terms of, you know, spreading the spreading the crowd out yeah yeah which which is a huge issue for for the whole park system i mean they're they're constantly working on strategies even even the apps now are trying to direct people you know out of crowded areas over to the less crowded lands and and venues uh just to try and help spread that out because that just makes a better experience for all the guests 
just trying to get to to view Fantasmic at Disneyland was a chore. And you're right. Everybody was standing because the show, the show is amazing. There's no doubt. I was lucky enough, Dave and Tom, you'll appreciate this to see Fantasmic uh, with the new dragon at club 33. Nice. Oh, wow. So at the, nice. so uh, just looking right out there with the wifey, I, it may have been our anniversary or something like that, but we were able to overlook and it is a, that's probably the best view <laughs> of the yeah, show yeah. Uh, outside of being right there uh, close to the water um, in front row, if you will. But uh, it is amazing. Now, Tom, you, you mentioned that you were, overlapping projects one after this was done and you handed it over and you put that baby baby to bed as it were what are other some uh, some of the other projects maybe that uh, people people would know you from because uh, you you worked a lot in the 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 different development of these different things at Disneyland in terms of the stages and, and the different events but uh, what other projects would our listeners uh, want to know that you worked on well, I worked on uh, <clears throat> one big one was the Fest uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame Festival of Fools uh, at Disneyland. Uh, and that was really a pretty substantial undertaking because uh, both they wanted to do a Hunchback show both at uh, Disneyland and at Walt Disney World. And Walt Disney World actually had a vacant theater, Theater of the Stars. And uh I saw that show at Walt Disney World, and I thought it was pretty good. But we decided to do this big outdoor stage kind of based on a like a medieval pageant. Uh, so we built this really substantial structure out there that kind of surrounded the place. It was sort of like a, uh, a medieval outdoor uh, theater. and then. We had to have like four huge lighting towers. We did a stage with the bell at one end. We had four wagons that came on and uh, became stages. And the guy who directed his name was Michael Bernard. And he sort of, like I said, developed it uh, or based kind of on the way a medieval mystery play might have been played. So they had these characters called the Vexillators. Because it was during the most of the shows were during the day, you had to try to focus people's attention because it was taking place all over the all over the theater. And so these vexillators with their staffs would all point to where the audience was supposed to look. Uh, and, you know, I I the show was strange. We had people sitting on the ground. We had people sitting on benches. Uh, the show took place all around you. Uh, we had these wagons that came in and out. Uh, and it was it was sort of a stylized retelling of the story, but I thought it was really effective, and it, I thought it looked really good. It turned out really well, but it was uh, it was a lengthy process to get that thing done. And when you when you look back on your career, what are you most proud of at Disneyland? At Disneyland, uh, well, the Snow White show that I did there that ran a couple of years. That was, that was pretty good. I mean, I think Fantasmic is, is the one I'm the, the thing I remember most about Fantasmic is you never, we never really had what I would call an opening night with it. I guess there was a first performance, but what there was, was a big press opening. Uh, Michael Eisner came and all the executives from the studio 
the world press was assembled to watch this performance of it. And I just remember when that thing was over, when they came to the point where Mickey's up on the up on the top of the cider mill and the lasers are going and the pyro is going, all my stuff had worked and it was done. You know, it was just such an overwhelming feeling of, uh, it's like joy and relief at the same yeah. time, right? Yeah. You know, cause like you're, you're, you're joyful that it all came together. You're relieved. Nothing went wrong right. during the, during, during the presentation because there were so many important people there. Right. Right. Uh, but that, you know, and plus I, you know, when that show was on Barnett's great gift, I think is, is timing the action to the music. In a, in a way that really is satisfying to see. Mm. So when you get to the end of that and the climactic, fan, the phantasmic theme is going and the lasers are going and everything is hitting on the beat. I mean, it is just, uh, it's just really thrilling to see. And I don't know that I've worked on very many things that had that kind of profound effect on me anyway. Well, and, and the fact that it was only supposed to be around for two years and on for three <laughs> decades, 30 right. years. I mean, that that's pretty phenomenal. And, uh, and Tom, what you're retired now. I am. And you're completely retired. You're, you're not doing any kind of, uh, well, I was doing, I did do some freelance jobs for WDI or creative entertainment. Their offices are over. I always think of it as WDI because that's their offices are in Glendale. Yeah. And, uh, so I did some concept stuff, uh, for various shows. I don't know that any of them actually were done. I did some, uh, art direction for this idea for R&D at R&W, Walt Disney R&D yeah. research and development mm -hmm. to try to come up with some kind of uh, shade structures that would sort of um, be deployed out of a what looked like a light pole shaft and these this thing would come up and it looked like a sort of like a giant champagne glass i worked on that for quite a while michael curry built those for us very nice um, and uh, so i did i did some work and then uh the pandemic happened and so there wasn't much yeah. work more and uh i haven't really gotten a call to do anything i mean i'd certainly consider doing something if someone asked me but i'm fine with uh you're, you're enjoying retirements yeah yeah that's awesome. Well, listen, I want to thank you very much, Tom Butch, for being on the Skull Rock podcast. Well, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock podcast. All aboard. Your Main Street to the world of Disney. You know what I love, Dave, is when you have guests on the show and they're just so into it that <laughs> you know they they're just so into it we could bring him back for future shows and tom is one of those I, I, people he really is and i gotta tell you i i love the backstory of how he got to uh disneyland entertainment yes uh i really i mean just the experiences he had uh in theater uh and set design and all of that you know and, and again it's all those life experiences that that artists have that that add to what they're doing when they you know 
come to a job like, you know, uh, working at Disney and doing a show like Fantasmic. It, it's it's just really uh, phenomenal. I feel like there's a there's a generation of those people that are so resourceful that when they're given a task, especially at Disney or, you know, other industries, even like my own, where their resourcefulness and their willingness to just learn and do things out of the box really helps propel the art form and the company to great heights because there's someone that takes that that stagecraft and all these ideas and applies it to many different aspects that that make a world of difference for the guests that that swing by the park and these different immersive experiences that that he so put together but uh yeah, I love that. I think a lot of that is lost on on some some generations because I just don't feel it. But I feel like yeah. this generation for sure uh, is able to just pull those resources together quite quite nicely. And, and well, and, you know, yeah. it's it's all of those individuals and their individual experiences, mm-hmm. you know, culminating in the creativity that they're putting together as teams. You know, when they work together uh, to create some of the incredible magic that uh, gets put into these parks. Wonderful. Real, real synergy there. I love it. Well, guys and gals, thank you so much for checking out the show and hanging out till the very end. We do appreciate it. It was an awesome interview. Look forward to more of these interviews every single week here on the show. If you're just joining us, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to us on every podcast platform. We would appreciate it. And another thing we would appreciate is you sending us those emails, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. We'll say once again, check out our link in the show notes to Old Mill Press, as well as our uh, great sponsors and affiliates for this program. Uh, It's the holiday season. So go ahead, take advantage of all that and support the show as well. We would appreciate it. Dave, you've got the last word. Yeah, Al John, you know, I, I, I just have to say, uh, as we're, we're sort of uh, quickly going into the holiday season, uh, just uh, uh, take your time out there. Be, be kind to people, and uh, we will see you back here next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. 
can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.